One of the fantastic things about the Earth is that it has the moon. The moon is so important to us. Why do we even have a moon? Let's find out how we got it. I'm Jim Green, NASA's chief scientist, and we're here on Gravity Assist to talk about the moon. I'm here with Dr. Robin Knup, one of the top solar system dynamicists. And what a dynamicist does is really study the motion of things, how they collide and come together. Robin also manages a major group of planetary scientists at Southwest Research Institute. And today we're going to talk about the latest theories on the formation of the moon. Welcome, Robin. Thank you very much, Jim. Well, it's really great to have you here. Ever since planetary scientists looked up, saw the moon, we were always wondering how the heck did we ever get such a beautiful body? So what are some of the different theories about the moon and how it was formed? This is indeed a very old question in planetary science. Some of the early ideas were known as capture, co-formation, and fission. So capture just proposed that the moon formed independently from the Earth and that during a close flyby, enough energy was dissipated that it was captured into a bound orbit around the Earth. Co-formation imagined that as the Earth was accumulating material and growing, the moon grew alongside it. And then finally, fission imagined that the Earth was once rotating so rapidly that it became unstable and it became more and more oblate at its equator until the material that eventually formed the moon was ejected from its equator regions. So those are traditional theories, but actually the theory that is favored now is a different one. One that was proposed in the mid-1970s called the Giant Impact Hypothesis. So it sounds like the best theory going is a giant impact. So what did hit the Earth? We think it was another planet-sized object that collided with the Earth near the end of Earth's formation that gave rise to our moon. So how did we tease that out? What did we know before and after the Apollo lunar missions? From remote sensing of the moon, before we actually went there, you could tell things like the size of the moon, its mass, and therefore its bulk density. And we knew right away from the bulk density that the moon compositionally was very unusual. Its density is very low, and that indicates that it lacks high-density iron. So while the Earth's iron-rich core comprises about 30% of Earth's mass, the moon's core is tiny. It contains only about a percent or so of its mass. So we knew that the moon was iron depleted even before we went there. Yeah, really anemic in that respect. Absolutely. <laughs> we also knew the spin rate of the Earth, our 24-hour day, and we knew the length of the orbital period of the moon around the Earth. And together, those quantities constitute what we call the angular momentum of the Earth-Moon system. And we knew that as the moon and Earth had interacted over time, the moon's gravity had raised tides on the Earth, most notably in our oceans, and that the interaction of the moon with those tides had caused its orbit to spiral outward over time and the Earth's spin to slow over time. So we had some inkling the moon must be moving away from us. Exactly. We also knew because of that, that when the moon first formed long ago, it would have formed much closer to the Earth and that the Earth would have been rapidly spinning with a day of only a few hours in length. 
Yeah, so like a ballerina spinning as she puts her arms out, she slows down. Exactly, and as she pulls them in, she speeds up. And in the same way, the Earth was rotating much more rapidly when the moon was orbiting close to it. So that really gave us, with our six Apollo lunar landers, the concept of, well, if we're going to put some instruments out, one of them's got to be a retro reflector. Exactly. And that allowed us to confirm the predicted outward motion of the moon, which is occurring at about a few centimeters per year, even today. So Robin, does that mean that when the dinosaurs looked up, the moon was bigger than it is today? No, the moon was probably (laughs) close to its current size then. The reason is that when the moon first evolved away from the Earth, it did so very rapidly. But the rate of that expansion slows very quickly as the moon gets farther away from the Earth. Well, you know, we brought back a lot of lunar material. I think we've got like 850 pounds of lunar material in our archive that we've been teasing out and looking at. And so that also told us a lot about the age of the moon. Absolutely. In fact, it was those oldest samples that revealed that the moon formed only about 60 million years after the oldest known grains in our solar system. And once we knew that, we knew that the moon itself was a product of this same epoch that had produced the planets, that it was an ancient body, and that its origin was likely tied to that of the Earth itself. So 60 million years after those early grains were forming must mean then, where's the Earth in that? Is the Earth already formed or nearly formed, or did it form first? We build models to try to simulate the assembly of the planets in our inner solar system from a disk of material that existed around the young sun. So those models track the material as solids collide and grow into first mini planets and then ever larger protoplanets reaching ultimately Earth-sized objects in the inner solar system. And when we follow that process, the initial phase in which you form bodies similar in size to our moon takes place relatively quickly in only about a million years. And so at that stage, you have a system of many planets, probably a hundred or so of them in the inner solar system. Protoplanets, exactly. And initially, they're all on relatively circular orbits. But then on a longer time scale, their mutual gravitational interactions slowly cause their orbits to begin to cross. And once they cross, they can collide with each other. And in these collisions, typically there's only one survivor. Usually the planets that are colliding merge and you form a larger planet. So that process of these mutual collisions occurs over 10 to 100 million years based on our numerical models of this process. And interestingly, that phase of giant impacts coincides with the measured age of the moon from the oldest lunar rocks. That's really neat. These protoplanets, they've already got the core mantle crust. They've already melted, and the core is now concentrated in iron and some of the larger mass materials that we have. Absolutely, and by the time those protoplanets are moon-sized or larger, the melting that you mentioned has caused their highest-density metallic components to concentrate in their centers into a core. Yeah, and that's from radioactivity and also because of the crushing mass. Exactly. So there's a constant heat source in the early solar system from the decay of unstable isotopes. In addition, every time you have one of these big collisions, 
there's a lot of heat deposited in the interiors of the colliding bodies, and that drives melting too. So why do you think we should care about how the moon was formed? Well, the big question of relevance here, of course, is how was the Earth formed, and more generally, how are Earth-like planets formed in other solar systems as well? So the moon is an amazing clue to answering that question. So our Earth, of course, is geologically active. It's constantly evolving. And in that way, it tends to erase the record of its ancient past. The moon, by comparison, is dormant. And its highly cratered regions have been largely unchanged for billions of years. And they've preserved a record of the ancient past. That is just really phenomenal when you think about it. The history of the evolution and the origin of our solar system is all about studying the moon and its place, how it came together, and the record that it has on its surface. This is a really fascinating topic to me in particular. And not only is it ancient, but it's our moon. Yeah. So it's shared our same local right. history and we think that its formation was linked directly to the final stages of formation of our planet through this giant impact event that we think produced the moon. The other part about that that's fascinating to me, you know, when I look at a planet, the first thing that comes to mind, the spherical nature of it, maybe gravity is uniformly distributed through that, and that's just not true of anything out there. The Earth is like pear-shaped, and the moon has got huge mass differences. And with the sun pulling on us, it's amazing that our rotational axis isn't being flipped around all over the place. One of the really interesting aspects of our moon is that it has uh, substantial gravitational effects on our planet's rotational axis. So by that I mean right now the, the tilt of our North Pole is about 23 and a half degrees. And it's that tilt, of course, that gives us our overall seasons. Now with the moon in place around the Earth and with the moon having its mass, the variation in that tilt is very small over long time scales, only about a degree or so. But within our solar system, if you take away the moon, if you imagine the Earth without our moon or even the Earth with a moon that was less massive by a factor of a few, because of the interactions of the Earth with the other planetary orbits, the tilt of our North Pole, our spin axis, would have varied largely over our history. And by large, it depends somewhat on what you would assume the rotation rate of the Earth would have been without the moon. But these variations would have been tens of degrees, perhaps up to 40 degrees. And so that would have had uh, profound effects on climate, climate on our yeah. planet, wow. absolutely, and on how life may have been able to develop. Yeah. The climate variations alone, when you think about humans migrating, whole civilizations have been destroyed by climate even during this time with our axis so stable over tens of thousands of years, even so recently as that. Well, you mentioned you've really been uh, using computers and computer simulations to really figure out how the moon was created in its relationship to the Earth. How do you do that? How do you approach that kind of problem? So we think the moon formed by one of these giant collisions by a protoplanet with the forming Earth at the very end of its formation. So you had another planet-sized body colliding with the Earth. This is not an event we can simulate in the laboratory, obviously. So instead, <laughs> instead we build 
computer models and we put in all of the, uh, the physical processes that we think will be important that we can include and we use that computer simulation in effect as like an experiment to test as a function of how large the impacting planet was, what angle it hit the Earth at, what speed it came in at, what are the impacts on our planet. And essentially the main approach is to describe the colliding bodies by typically about a million individual parcels of material whose individual evolutions you're tracking during the course of the simulation. And you're tracking things like their position in space, their velocity, uh, their temperature, and their phase, whether they're uh, vapor, uh, melt, or a combination of the two. When did you start doing that? When were computers good enough to enable you to do something that you could believe? Well, the technique I just described was really initiated in the mid-1980s, before I was working on this problem. But at that time, it was extraordinarily difficult computationally to do these simulations. So a single simulation with very low resolution could take several years of computer time. Wow. So initially, the number of these simulations we could do was very limited. And so as such, uh, groups uh, led by Willie Benz and Al Cameron did initial simulations that showed, yes, a collision like this could put debris into orbit around the Earth, so we could potentially form a moon this way, but they weren't able to identify the type of impact that could really give us our Earth-Moon system. And so when I started working on the problem, it was around 2000. And by that point, we were able to do, uh, say, 40 or 50 simulations within a few months of computational time. And with that kind of ability, you could narrow down the type of collision, which we think to describe many features of the system would involve a roughly Mars-sized impactor. Yeah, and in addition to that, I'm sure you're looking for certain features that would come out that would reproduce the current knowledge about our Earth-Moon system today. What were some of those important features that led you along to the idea that this must be the right way to go? So initially, we were trying to explain the very basic properties of the Earth-Moon system. So we were trying to explain why the Moon lacks iron, why it doesn't have a large iron core. We were trying to explain, of course, the masses of the Earth and the Moon. And the Moon is quite massive relative to the Earth for a satellite. And so that was a key constraint. And then finally, we were trying to explain our current 24-hour day. In other words, we were looking at impacts that would have left the Earth rotating with a day of only several hours so that as the Moon-Earth system tidally evolved, subsequently over 4.5 billion years, we would recover our current 24-hour day and the orbit of the Moon. And, and that's because the Moon would have to form close to the Earth from that impact. Absolutely, so these impacts eject some of the material into orbit around the Earth and it forms a disk around the Earth. Now it's interesting because inside this critical distance in the Roche limit, the planet's gravity is strong enough that it keeps debris from accumulating and growing into a satellite. And we know this, for example, from looking at the rings of Saturn. Those particles collide with each other all the time, and yet they don't coalesce into a moon. And that's because they're orbiting within the Roche limit at Saturn. So we know from this that when there was this uh, massive hot disk around the Earth produced by the giant impact, that the moon would have coalesced, not at the disk inner edge, but beyond that distance at about three to four Earth radii from the center of the Earth. Really close to us. 
Yes. Wow, that's fantastic. So it looks like the impactor about the size of Mars, a fully formed large body, and I guess we call it Thea today. That's right. And interestingly, the nature of this collision has really been debated over the past decade. And a collision by a Mars-sized body, like we've talked about so far, does a great job of explaining the basic features, the spin rate, the masses, the moon's iron depletion. It explains the moon's iron depletion because when you have one of these collisions, the material that goes into orbit around the Earth from which the moon forms comes primarily from the outer, iron-depleted layers of the colliding bodies rather than from their metallic cores. So the impact naturally produces an iron-depleted moon. But the really interesting part of this problem is what we know solely because we have samples of the moon from Apollo. Now, interestingly, when, when we analyze those samples, even though we knew the moon was very different from the Earth in terms of its bulk iron content, those samples showed that, for example, when you look at the most abundant element in mantle rocks, oxygen, and you compared the relative abundance of the isotopes of oxygen in lunar rocks versus terrestrial rocks, they looked indistinguishable. And yet, when you look at a meteorite that either came from Mars or came from a parent body in the asteroid belt, their distribution of oxygen isotopes and the relative abundances looks distinctly different from that of the Earth. So the measurement of an isotope is really important. So how do we define that? What is an isotope? So for an element like oxygen, most oxygen atoms will have eight neutrons in their nucleus. But a small percentage of oxygen atoms will have an extra neutron. And an even smaller fraction of oxygen atoms will have two extra neutrons. So these different types of oxygen atoms are known as different isotopes of oxygen. And so what you can do is you can take a sample from anywhere in the Earth, actually, and you can measure the relative proportion of these different isotopes. And it's by comparison of those relative abundances of the different isotopes that one can essentially see a fingerprint of the distribution of material that gave rise to the Earth or to the Moon or to meteorites, for example. So we use these isotopes to tell us about the original source material that went into a planetary object. So it's all about the number of neutrons. So from the Apollo samples, we knew that while the moon lacked iron, in other ways it looked amazingly similar to the Earth's mantle. So why is that important? So we did these, this first generation of simulations of giant impacts and showed that a Mars-sized impactor could explain the spin rate, the iron depletion. But one of the things these impact simulations always find is that the material that goes into orbit around the Earth in these types of impacts comes from Theia. It comes from the outer layers of the impacting planet rather than from the Earth. Now, we don't know what Theia's isotopic composition would have been for certain. Of course, that planet is now gone. But if we look at meteorites and we say, well, Theia was probably as different from the Earth as, say, a meteorite from Mars is today, and if we assume the pre-lunar disk came from Theia, we would expect there to be measurable differences between the Earth and Moon today in terms of this oxygen isotope signature. And we don't see any. Perhaps Theia, in terms of its isotopic composition, just happened to be very Earth-like. 
by virtue of having formed nearby from a common source of material, for example. It had to be left alone long enough to be able to get as big as it was. Exactly, and it has to have avoided having a collision with the Earth for tens of millions of years <laughs> based on the 60 million year old time before we know the moon formed based on the oldest lunar rocks. So what's been happening is we've been looking at lots of different types of collisions to see if we can find collisions that can, in addition to explaining the mass and the iron depletion of the moon, can also be consistent with this extreme isotopic similarity between the lunar rocks and the Earth's mantle. And so there's a variety of different types of processes that have now been proposed. You know, another feature of the moon is the crust thickness. We're finding from GRAIL data that the crust on the far side of the moon is thicker by a considerable amount than the near side of the moon. Can we reproduce that in our computer simulations? Well, just after the impact, the moon was at least molten in its outer few hundred kilometers. We know that. It may have been fully molten when it first formed. So then as the moon cooled, it was also tidally interacting with the Earth, and its, its orbit was spiraling outward. One of the interesting effects of the gravitational interaction between the Earth and the moon is that as the Earth is tugging on the moon, it tends to distort the shape of the moon somewhat. It tends to make it slightly non-spherical. It tends to elongate it in the direction of the Earth. And once that distortion forms, if the same face of the moon isn't always facing the Earth, if it's rotating, then the Earth will tend to tug on that distorted shape that it's created in the moon. And that tugging dissipates energy until the moon locks to having just one face towards the Earth. And so we think the moon would have achieved that locked configuration with the Earth quite rapidly. And so there are some models that associate that locking and the subsequent distortion of the moon by the Earth in that state, while it still had an underlying melted region that we call a magma ocean, with why the crust on the near side would have ended up being thinner and the crust on the back side would have ended up being thicker. There's other models that propose that it may have been due to the fact that the side facing the Earth would have had a higher temperature due to uh, radiation from the then still hot Earth from the giant impact. And that that may have led to additional deposition of some elements on the far side leading to a thicker crust. Yeah, so the moon then would literally have an atmosphere, so to speak, and then the dynamics are so much different. I had also heard that another theory was that other objects, smaller, may be also accreting and then impacting the moon on the far side, thickening that crust. Absolutely. So there is a theory by Jutzian Asfog that proposes that initially we accumulated one dominant moon, our moon, out of this disk produced by the giant impact, but that there was also a smaller companion moon. And this is definitely an outcome you see in some of the numerical models of the moon's assembly after a giant impact. Okay, so or there other objects. Yeah, so their idea was that that thickened far side crust is due to a mini moon essentially colliding with the moon and depositing extra material just over approximately a hemisphere of the moon's surface. 
You know, whenever we do these kind of simulations, we also find out some new things that we want to be able to see or decide on new measurements that we want to make. Were there any things like that that were coming out of your models that allowed you then to say, oh, we have to check this out? One of the interesting things has come from the models that look at how the moon accumulates from this debris field produced by the giant impact. And as we talked about before, the moon forms in the outer regions of the disk beyond this critical distance known as the Roche limit. So one of the things we found in the model is that that material in the outer disk often comes more heavily from the impacting planet Theia, while the material in the inner disk is derived more strongly from the Earth and indeed may be more likely to mix with material from the Earth, material in the outer disk tends to come more from that impacting planet. Now as we developed models of the Moon's assembly, what we see is that material in the outer disk accumulates into uh, an object with, say, half the Moon's mass very quickly in only a few months after wow. the impact. Wow. Then over a longer time scale, as this hot inner disk near the Earth cools, condenses, and spreads outward, the last half of the Moon's mass is then delivered from this inner region. So this has led to a prediction that there are various signs that the Moon did not fully mix within its interior after it formed. And if that was the case, then we think this initial portion of the Moon that accumulated very rapidly would be the most likely to be volatile rich, to be abundant in things like water, and to perhaps hold isotopic signatures of Theia, of that lost planet that collided with the Earth. In contrast, the final portions from the inner disk would be much more Earth-like, typically, and those would have been added on last. Those outer portions of the moon would then be more likely to be Earth-like and dry because they were delivered from this hot, partially vaporized region of the disk. So the prediction is that as we look at lunar samples, and we hope we'll get many more of them in the near term. That's the plan. That reflect the moon's composition at depth, these models would predict that they will tend to be more volatile rich and they will tend to be more isotopically different from the Earth than those derived from the moon's outer or upper regions. Just recently we announced with uh, the LADEE mission, the analysis of that over several months seemed to indicate that water is released during meteorite showers, you know, that uh, little micrometeors hit the moon and then if they go down to 10 centimeters is the estimate, it liberates water. This then bodes well for this part of the theory. Absolutely. And the whole existence of a water cycle on the moon was something that we didn't even know about a couple decades ago. Yeah. We, we now know that there are multiple processes associated with water on the moon. Wow, who would have thought a water cycle on the moon? Exactly. <laughs> Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic discovery. Well, what's left now to do with the simulations? What should we be up to? So what we're trying to do right now, we have about a half dozen different impact models that have been proposed. Each of them right now appears viable. So we're trying to push these models to the next level. And by the next level, I mean we're trying to, to make them sophisticated enough so that they can predict 
observable properties of the moon that would result in each of these different scenarios. So the goal is ultimately to try to test these different theories against current and future data about the moon's physical properties. So what do I mean by that? We're trying to develop models that tell us, as a function of the type of giant impact, what is the initial thermal state of the moon? To what degree was the moon initially molten? Because it turns out there are a variety of uh, properties of the moon that suggest that it was not fully molten, and in its interior it was solid, but its outer layers were molten. We're also trying to develop predictions for the abundance of different elements in the moon as a function of these various theoretical models. Wow, that's really fascinating. Everything we're debating about moon origin today is due to the fact that we have samples. Yeah. And that we can compare those samples to those of the Earth, and they tell us that it's not as simple as what we thought. And so this is an amazing example in astrophysics where uh, the knowledge of the chemistry and the physical properties that you get from samples changes the nature of the problem altogether. Yeah, really good point. Well, you know, Robin, I always ask my guests to tell me what event or activity or place or thing that happened to them in the past that so excited them that they decided to change their direction and become the scientists they are today. I call that a gravity assist. So Robin, what was your gravity assist? Well, I think I had two. The first was when I was in middle school and two things happened. First, the Cosmos series with Carl Sagan was playing. Oh, yeah. I watched that constantly. It was one of my favorite shows. The second thing that happened was Voyager 1 and then Voyager 2 flew past Saturn. And the images I saw from those encounters, I just found unbelievable. Yeah. The intricacy, the beauty, the planet, the rings. So, so that kind of set the stage. Then years later in college, I was a physics major, and I didn't have any particular plan on what I wanted to do, but the best professor I had was in astrophysics, uh, a professor by the name of John Kalina, who also taught at Duke where I went, and the North Carolina School of Science and Math right across the town in Durham. And he taught his class in a very different way from all of my other science classes. He didn't just assign problems from a textbook. His tests were open book and you had 24 hours to complete them. Instead, he ran his class and he designed his homework and test as, in effect, many research problems. He would tell you, this is what we start with. Here are types of observations we could potentially make. How could you learn something from these to answer a problem? Wow. And so this was a completely different approach. Yeah. Essentially, the focus was on how do we figure out new things rather than memorizing things yeah. or learning how to do things in a way that someone has already established. And so I loved this class. And in retrospect, it was because he ran it like you were working on a research project. Right, and so right. that's what really led me to uh, graduate school in astrophysics and um, ultimately into planetary science. Well, I really want to thank you. It was just delightful to talk about uh, a new way of understanding things by simulation and computers. And what you guys have done in this particular area is just really astounding. So, Robin, thanks so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Join me next time as we continue our exploration of the moon. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. <laughs>